Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's role and actions as a United Nations Security Council permanent member. Playing a role in UN operations offers Beijing a way to demonstrate its commitment to international peace and global stability. Financial and personnel contributions to peacekeeping missions promote a positive image of China. And at the same time, China has been exercising its veto power with somewhat increased frequency and showing some support for principles it previously opposed, like the responsibility to protect. As with all countries, China's activities within the UN must be examined against the context of its current domestic and foreign policy. What does China want to get out of participation in the United Nations, and how does China's membership factor into its broader strategic goals? To answer these questions and to talk about China's evolving role in the UN, I'm joined by Dr. Courtney Fung. Dr. Fung is Assistant Professor of International Relations in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Her forthcoming book is titled China and Intervention at the UN Security Council, Reconciling Status. And it'll be available pretty soon in July, and you can order it now on Amazon.com. Courtney, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bonnie. So let's start with a with a general question. Can you talk about China's relationship with the United Nations? What are some of the areas that China participates actively, and and where is there tension between、um, China's interests and the mandate of the UN? Well, I think the most important thing to point out is that the UN itself is extremely precious to China.、Um, the UN. Provides China with its permanent seat as the most important institution to regulate global peace and security. So, obviously, with its permanent membership at the UN Security Council,、um, China not only holds a veto vote and the threat of a veto vote, but it also has all of the legitimacy and authority that's reinforced from having this permanent seat. And it provides Beijing with a very important opportunity to lead globally, especially right now that we are entering a phase, a continuing phase, it looks like,、um, of U.S. withdrawal from sort of active leadership at the UN and a lack of patience per se for using the UN as a primary venue to discuss problems of global politics, problems of global peace and security. So in this way, China is very committed to having a functioning United Nations Security Council. Because after all, if it doesn't work, if no one takes it seriously, if it's not the platform of first choice, then obviously this is an issue for China as it tries to sort of work through the council and use the council to support greater Chinese foreign policy interests. We can definitely see over the last couple of years, over the last decades, China's particular commitment、um, to questions about the environment, sustainable development, and broadly speaking, issues of peace and security, like peacekeeping, and even now the responsibility to protect.、Um, but I think it's also very clear to point out that there are still tensions for China with its own very particularist, party-first, state-first interpretation. Of how global politics should function, how China should relate to the rest of the world, and importantly, how the rest of the world should relate to China. This sometimes can put China in an awkward position, vis-a-vis the more expansive interpretations of the UN Charter's principle、um, principles and these ideas about promoting Western liberal norms and values like democracy promotion, a free and open civil society, and the emphasis on civil and political rights within 
the fundamental set of human rights. So this isn't to paint it that the UN and China necessarily are always hand in hand, but I think it's to be very clear that China would like to have a firm relationship, and it's a very important relationship for Beijing, because Beijing does not have any other platform like the United Nations or the willingness, per se, to go it alone on a wider variety of foreign policy issues. Your forthcoming book um, focuses on what you refer to as China's status dilemma in the context of its behavior as a permanent member uh, of the UN Security Council. So can you talk a little bit about what this status dilemma is and how it, how it shapes Chinese thinking? Sure. So I think there's a very lively and rich discussion amongst the Chinese foreign policy scholarly community about the implications of China's rise. But much of this has been written about as if China's rise will for sure lead to Beijing only assuming a great power role. So I was very interested when I started examining the details of how China works at the UN Security Council to see this very strong, consistent emphasis that China seeks status when it comes to questions of intervention in particular from two separate groups. Um, so the great powers, which are primarily sort of reflected in the other permanent members of the UN Security Council, in particular the permanent three, the P3, the Western states of Great Britain, the United States and France, and also China's fascination and commitment to being a global South player, the G77 plus China. So China's focus on looking at other developing states, um, the host state that has to take the intervention and the regional organizations associated with where the intervention will occur. And so my book sort of addresses China's status dilemma, how China secures status recognition from all of its status groups. So for intervention, again, the great powers represented primarily by the P3 and the global south represented primarily by host states and regional organizations. And so the book shows how status, i.e. how China understands its rank or standing amongst its peers, can, under certain conditions, have an independent and significant effect for China's position on, on intervention. Even moving Beijing further towards approving or at least condoning resolutions that it may not have been willing to do had there been no status pressures at play. But to be clear, I also want to make note that the status appetite that Beijing has varies. I do not assume that it's status, search for status at all the time. And there definitely are striking examples of China pursuing status, even bearing material cost, and also striking examples of when China is willing to bear status costs. Um, so I think the book sort of engages in a debate about what China's rise means and also how we understand status and questions of how status can actually help promote cooperation, as opposed to, as it's largely been written about, supporting conflict. Let's talk a little bit about China's voting record at the UN and how it relates to Chinese uh, priorities. So uh, the PRC, of course, was admitted to the United Nations in 1971 and um, for a long time, and it has abstained. Uh, we have on our China Power website a, an infographic that uh, lays out all of the resolutions and where China has uh, voted or uh, yes or where it has vetoed and where it has abstained. And we found that China has vetoed uh, 12 resolutions and to join the UN, nine of these uh, since uh, 2007. So why is China using its veto power more frequently now? I completely agree. I love the infographic that, of course, you know, the facts are clear that China was averaging approximately only two vetoes a decade. 
um, and ultimately still has the absolute lowest number of veto votes cast amongst the permanent five. Um, that said, I think we are sort of facing three trends that help explain sort of China's more recent willingness to cast veto votes. There is the perpetual worry that China has that they have to veto out of the concern that the UN Security Council is overlooking or overstepping its mandate into questions of state sovereignty, so meddling in issues that Beijing deems are solidly domestic affairs and present no threat to international peace and security. And so we do see a motivation that certain resolutions are selected as going too far. Um, but I think to take that narrow view sort of misses a much broader change that's been going on within the international system. And we have seen over the last decades in particular um, a persistent, growing commitment to the ideas about the norms of accountability, the norms about protections of civilians, about the responsibility to protect, and that these norms are sometimes interpreted under certain conditions as targeting states for dispatch. So i.e. the host state where the intervention has to occur is not actually seen as a partner with the United Nations to resolve whatever issues are going on within its borders. The solution is put forward that the leadership removal actually is the solution. And so I think this question about to what extent intervention and regime change overlap um, has led to China sort of pushing more recently, even against resolutions that are seen as relatively innocuous. Some of the vetoes cast regarding the Syria crisis, for example, um, where China has sort of viewed these resolutions with much more disdain out of fear that even the more sort of innocuous language could open the door to a much larger operation than Beijing had initially agreed to or perceived as needed to begin with. And I should also note the other trend that is also important to point out. It's not just about China's veto. There is also a whole discussion and debate going on with the other 14 members at the UN Security Council and the willingness now to permit resolutions that have been threatened in discussions. It's openly reported in the press that Russia or China, for example, or even the Americans over other vetoed resolutions are willing to actually veto. And there's still this willingness to push these resolutions forward to vote. And so the fact that the UN Security Council collectively is willing to sort of hang itself over questions of international peace and security is also part of this, um, sort of throwing the gauntlet down and seeing whether or not China or Russia are willing to bear the cost and all the social opprobrium that comes with sort of halting the UN's activity in trying to resolve issues of peace and security. So again, I think that there are a number of um, trends affecting how come these vetoes have apparently started to occur with greater significance since 2007. I mentioned at the top the uh, the responsibility to protect, which, of course, is a, a principle that was adopted by the member states uh, to protect populations from genocide and other crimes against humanity. And China was initially hesitant um, in su to support R2P, but recently it has endorsed um, the application of R2P in, in, in several countries. So why has China's approach to uh, the responsibility to protect changed over time? And is, is its position unique or does it have some similarity to other um, members of the, uh, of the Perm 5? So China's view about the responsibility to protect, which is a fundamental reconsideration about what sovereignty is, i.e. sovereignty is not a right of states, it's a responsibility. And should a state be unable or unwilling 
to actually execute this responsibility, then the international community has a number of steps it can take in order to help either support the state in executing its responsibility or, in fact, notionally actually intervene through legal, military, economic measures, etc. Um, and I think the reason why we can sort of see China's gradual acceptance and, at times, actual support, outright support for R2P is because, frankly, the conception that we're working with now, Beijing has come to realize it's actually not as interventionist as they had initially thought when the norm was first introduced for public discussion in 2001. Um, China and a variety of other states, um, India, Pakistan, um, other players have also come out and worked very hard to reshape the normative content of R2P by gradually importing the idea that state sovereignty is actually the means to actually get to the responsibility to protect, to protect. So it's somewhat contradictory. But basically, Beijing's idea has been to sort of show that state strength and state capacity building measures are the means to actually solidify R2P. So in this way, um, Beijing has found that this actually is not as complicated or is not as potentially dangerous a norm had they, that, that, that they had initially assumed it to be. Um, and also that said, too, there's been a clarification that, again, it's not really a change to current international humanitarian law. The authority for the invocation of it rests at the UN Security Council, where China has a veto. And as long as China is comfortable that R2P is not moving towards regime change and it stays within the confines of the 2005 World Summit Outcome Document Standards, and in some respects, China is actually quite comfortable using R2P. Um, I should also point out that China is not necessarily an outlier against other UN Security Council permanent members who have some ambivalence about what this norm, what this principle actually means. Um, but of course, typically the P3 are much more willing to invoke R2P, even if it does mean a flat-out challenge to states' authorities. So let's talk a little bit about um, UN peacekeeping operations. And, uh, you know, this is an area where China's approach has just changed um, fundamentally and uh, provides, of course, more peacekeepers now um, than any other member of the, of the Perm 5. China trains peacekeepers and now is even participating in uh, some uh, uh, combat roles. So can you talk about the evolution of China's uh, thinking about participation in peacekeeping operations and, and what really accounts from this shift? Is, is this simply viewed by China as a way of uh, providing public goods? Um, is it uh, a way of gaining uh, some experience for the PLA? Um, or how do you view China's, China's objectives? Well, I think China's China's rise as a peacekeeping state has taken it decades. China did not engage in questions of peacekeeping until 1981, so it sat through a whole decade at the UN Security Council, um, casting no votes and, and not financing any peacekeeping operations. Um, the first vote to support a traditional peacekeeping mission came in 1981, and then the slow steps to have civilian observers, enabler troop deployments, support for multidimensional peacekeeping missions, and now, starting since 2013, the use of combat troops. So it's been a very slow, methodical um, increase over time, learning over time that peacekeeping itself is a useful platform and a very useful tool for China. And there are some things that are sort of hard material benefits that peacekeeping really offers. So again, it bolsters the host state 
it bolsters the sense of promoting international security. And I think this is a very interesting hallmark of the way that China deploys to peacekeeping, is that it's very typical for Beijing to have dozens of continuous rotations on the same mission, which implies that they're much more interested in sort of strengthening state capacity in the long run versus a more sort of short-term stabilization initiative, that you might see sort of states engaging in a certain peacekeeping mission for only two years before they cycle out and they don't come back. Um, of course, you know, deploying to peacekeeping is seen as providing a global public good, so it helps blunt criticisms about China's defense spending. It provides China a viable platform for military-to-military -military cooperation in the field, of course, but also beyond. Um, China's used this peacekeeping question as sort of an um, a means to have an overture in discussions with the United States, for example, so at the 2016 G20 summit in Hangzhou, um, China had a conversation pushing the idea about peacekeeping cooperation between the U.S. and China as the platform to foster closer relations. Um, of course, peacekeeping provides an opportunity to field test equipment and to reskill China's peacetime military, which is something that Xi Jinping is calling for for greater operational exposure by 2020. And of course, we have to remember it's not just about what goes on in mission in the field. Also having these appointments, um, these military appointments within headquarters, so when you can second a PLA officer to work within the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations, is also a very important opportunity for China to take these sort of politically devised mandates, work out concepts of operations, work out questions of rules of engagement. These are very, very rare practical skills for a PLA official, a rare opportunity for them to sort of have that field exposure at headquarters level also. And of course now peacekeeping is starting to overlap with discussions about the use of peacekeeping for counterterrorism and anti-extremism, which are hobby horse projects for China elsewhere at the UN and obviously domestically. So I think again, Peacekeeping also provides a sort of practical benefit that they've been able to sort of use peacekeepers, Chinese peacekeepers, as a means to help beleaguered Chinese nationals overseas, so the overseas protection. But I do want to emphasize, though, it's not just about the practical, hard material benefits. There are these massive reputational gains that Beijing can make, and Beijing does make, um, through its peacekeeping deployments. So, for example, peacekeeping is discussed frequently from Beijing's viewpoint as proof of its great power responsibility. It's a responsible power, a responsible great power. And this has come to mean that Beijing operates in ways that are atypical to other great powers at the UN Security Council. So, for example, China will be very keen to let anyone know that they deploy more peacekeepers than the rest of the P5 combined. Um, this is their proof that they're willing to strengthen multilateralism and bear the cost in these far-flung, faraway places um, in order to promote international security. It also provides China the opportunity to stand shoulder to shoulder with the developing world, literally building peace with their third world brethren. And of course, domestically, it's part of a very important narrative about China's domestic strength and the way that Chinese PLA officers that are UN peacekeepers are well-received emissaries of China representing the best of China abroad. But all of that said, Bonnie, I do want to be careful that there are these issues that are growing with China's most recent deployment of combat troops um, to MINUSMA in Mali and UNMIS in South Sudan. And these deployments have the potential to complicate the gains that China has in peacekeeping because there are very specific risks and costs associated with actual combat. So, for example, when and how and whether China uses force can help complicate 
its image as a helpful fixer because now they have to be seen firing and receiving fire and firing bullets. This is not good news for China, potentially, if something goes wrong. And again, China has to be willing to accept combat death. And so this is moving Beijing out of its comfort zone into active interoperability in some very hostile places that are frankly hostile to the UN. And again, massive scrutiny for underperformance or lack of performance. So I think as much as peacekeeping has a number of benefits that it can accrue for China, um, China itself also has to be very aware of how it develops its relationship with peacekeeping, especially now that it moves down this combat role space. Xi Jinping has identified global governance reform as one of China's biggest priorities. So if we look at the UN, uh, obviously a very important institution uh, for global governance, do we see evidence of China working to reshape the UN to accommodate its interests? And if so, in what ways? This is a great question. Um, And I think it's also very important to note that China has attempted for a very long time to make sure that the UN can accommodate its interests. The question is whether or not China now, with sort of new economic might, a growing global footprint, can do this in new ways or in ways with greater efficiency and authority than before. And of course, we all know the examples of the Taiwan vetoes in the 1990s. So the states that had recognized the Republic of China, Taiwan, as representing China. So Guatemala received a veto in 1994 for an extension of its peacekeeping mission. Um, Macedonia received a veto in 1999 for these reasons. And of course, China has been consistent about boxing in and blocking Taiwan's participation, most recently in, in the World Health Assembly. So again, this is sort of a consistent position regarding Taiwan-related questions that the UN must accommodate China's interests. That said, um, evidence does suggest on the margin that China is more comfortable flexing its muscle on old issues in new ways. Um, So, for example, there was recent reporting that China and Russia had pushed successfully to reduce human rights billets that are attached to peacekeeping missions under the argument that there was a need for austerity for peacekeeping budgets. Um, It's arguable how much you can really save by removing a handful of peacekeeping billets that are related for human rights officers. But this was sort of the push and the angle that the Chinese and the Russians took, and they were successful in sort of pushing that through. Again, as sort of part of a Chinese position about the relevance about promoting certain types of human rights first. Um, And of course, we have seen, as we've just discussed, an uptick on vetoes on relatively bland resolutions, again, as a sign that the Chinese are unwilling to engage in the opportunity for intervention to spill into foreign imposed regime change. And we have seen, again, in the most recent turn, particularly under Xi, this position of trying to attempt these new tactics, inserting Chinese language into UN documentation at the Human Rights Council, at the General Assembly, at the Security Council. So, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative um, as being part of the Sustainable Development Goals, this community of a shared future for humankind, this language is now sort of entering these hallmark phrases that Xi is reviving and bringing to the global stage that China is going to help lead this community of shared future for a humankind, um, that this language is now getting inserted into UN Security Council, UNGA, UN Human Rights Council documentation. And of course, this push to have senior UN officials sing the praise about Chinese um, programmatic efforts like 
BRI as a means to promote development. And we've even seen the Secretary General himself talking about the mass benefits to be gained by strengthening BRI. But I think I would be cautious, though, about saying that to say immediately that this is necessarily a negative thing. I think what we can see is that China is now moving into a space where it is trying to, on the margins, trying to promote its ideas and its views into the UN system. And in many ways, this actually is a very important opportunity to engage with Chinese officials, Chinese diplomats, to try and understand what these massive projects like BRI, this umbrella term that incorporates many, many other types of projects underneath it, um, these very important phrases to the Chinese state, this community, the shared future for humankind, for example, exactly what they mean. Precisely because meaningful, durable global governance without China won't be possible. And I think there are certainly many of those working within the UN system that fully understand that if we have a better understanding of China's views, a more sophisticated understanding of where China is coming from, then potentially we can still find, jointly find accommodation and a common path forward in questions of global peace and security. So I think just the last point on this. Um, that having a conversation about these about these terms and about this language actually would be very helpful, especially as it appears that C is doubling down on making sure this language and these ideas and these programmatic initiatives can also enter the UN sphere. One area that China's been very active in global governance uh, that you didn't mention is um, internet freedom and cyber issues, and, and the Chinese have been working with the Russians and others to strengthen the rights of governments to exert control over information. Um, that obviously is a very different uh, perspective than uh, Western governments that feel that information should be made widely uh, available and should not be controlled. And of course, this um, rubs against the interpretations of sovereignty uh, that China has. So is this a problem? I think, I think you raise a very interesting set of issues under this question about sort of questions of cyber sovereignty, cyber espionage, um, best practices regarding some type of emerging information order or an emerging cyber order and what space the UN can play in terms of regulating these issues. But I think it's very important to note two things. Um, first off, it's actually quite fascinating because there really isn't a lot of international agreement. So there's not a lot of documentation for the UN to fall back to or for other players to fall back to. And this is where I think we will see a lot of contention as we are duking it out now to try and understand what are the baseline agreements, um, the baseline interpretations for how one should operate on questions to do with information management, cybersecurity, cyber espionage, et cetera. But I think, too, the recent record, setting aside the whole Huawei debate, but turning back to this question about cyber espionage more broadly, one of the things that have come out of this is sort of the awareness that the U.S. views that cyber espionage, the use of businesses to promote espionage, um, the use of businesses as a means to sort of garner information and cyber espionage through business firms, that this has actually turned out to be a minority view. And I think this, again, provides us with an opportunity, if we are to try and promote meaningful, durable global governance structures, to try and engage in discussion and debate and to try and really understand what motivates the Chinese and Russian, Indian, Brazilian positions on these issues, 
to try and understand a better way to actually find some type of cooperation. So I will admit that this is obviously moving out of my wheelhouse, but I will say that to be cautious of assuming that there is some type of structured international set of agreements or even an international order in this space already. And I think this is why this has turned out to be so contentious, in part because there's a lack of common understanding about where the red lines lie. So if you look at the next maybe, you know, three to five years, uh, how do you expect uh, China's role in the UN to develop? Where do you think they'll be um, actively participating? Are there specific issue areas that you think they'll attach priority to? And um, is there any prospect for China supporting um, reform of the UN, which um, they have paid lip service to? I think the United States has also paid lip service to, but could Chinese interests uh, change in that regard? And what, 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 what are the factors that will, that will affect China's approach to the UN as we go forward? Well, I, I think like any state, China has an interest in engaging with the UN as long as engagement turns out to be a net positive for Beijing. And again, the U.S. withdrawal from the United Nations provides China with ample space to expand its leadership role. And this is you know, one of the unfortunate side effects um, of sort of a Trump administration's lack of interest with the UN as a platform for global governance. But I think it's also key to remember that China's tolerance is very, very high for sort of making sure the UN can function, again, because China values the UN in such a particular way. So I think we can definitely see that China will continue sort of on a path of promoting its own programmatic initiatives, its own particular discursive language, again, the shared community concept, the ideas about the BRI linking to the sustainable development goals, so the emphasis about the use of peacekeeping as a very particular platform for China to showcase its responsible great power, um, initiatives for China to try and help shape and mold the use and the direction of the Human Rights Council. I think that we'll continue to see more of the same continuing down that path. What I will be intrigued to see, though, is whether or not China is willing to sort of engage in discussions about this potential information order on all things cyber. And we haven't seen very consistent Chinese positions on this yet. Um, the withdrawal from discussions regarding, you know, standard standards for how one does cyber espionage or things like this, that Beijing was sort of unwilling to engage in these debates. And I think this is sort of the more interesting space to be focusing upon that we're not really clear about in, in the next stretch. The last point I'd like to make is just to remember that the tough part for China is going to be selling these Chinese-derived ideas beyond its typical coterie of intervention skeptics and developing world states. This is the tough thing that China has to get over, is over that threshold of the skepticism, the cynicism that BRI is nothing but a cloak, um, that BRI is covering sort of questions about um, local governance, accountability, anti-corruption that China hasn't really addressed as it tries to engage with linking BRI up to the UN um, sustainable development goals, questions, you know, exactly what does this shared community concept mean? Win-win, dialogue, common security, greater cooperation. How do these things actually function? And the tough part for China will be selling these ideas to an already skeptical audience. 
We've been talking with Dr. Courtney Fung, who's Assistant Professor of International Relations uh, in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. And I hope that you're all going to want to buy her new book, which will be coming out in July, China and Intervention at the UN Security Council. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Courtney. Thanks again for having me, Bonnie.